Amen. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Kyle. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 1. And if not, it's okay. You can look on the screen with us today. John chapter 1, verse 14 specifically. So today we are continuing with part 2 of the message from last week. Uh, And so we're going to dive into that in just a second. But first, uh, let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Help us receive it and understand it today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would, God, remove any uh, distraction just in our own minds right now that would hinder us from really listening and being attentive and receiving your word. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts and use your word to really convict us, but also encourage us. In your name we pray, amen. Well, last week uh, we talked uh, about how, you know, the the more familiar we are with something in our lives over time, the less amazed we become, right? So uh, it could be something that is a man-made invention. You know, last week I told you that when cell phones first came out, man, we thought that was the most amazing invention in the history of the world. And now it's just like, yeah, okay, whatever. I mean, it's not a big deal, right? And, or it could be even just creation itself, like the moon or the ocean. You know, growing up as a kid, you look out and it's so amazing, but then the, the further along you get in life, it's like you kind of start taking those things for granted. They just kind of lose their sense of wonder if we don't stop and really take time to think about the complexities and the intricacies and the details of these amazing things. But for many people, I'm afraid the Christmas story of Jesus coming to earth falls into those categories. For many people, it's just been turned into some kind of nice, cozy part of your Christmas tradition, but maybe it's really lost its power, its sense of wonder in your heart. There's so much, though, to wonder at the birth of Christ. So how can we regain that sense of awe, that wonder, that excitement even, when we think about Jesus coming to earth as a human? How can we regain that? Well, that's what we started talking about last week. You know, we, we, we have to focus, we have to meditate on the details, the big truths of, that are really central to the reality of what was happening when the Son of God came to earth. And the Apostle John helps us do this by looking at the Christmas story from a little bit of a different vantage point, than, especially than his counterparts, uh, Matthew and Luke. John describes Jesus being born like this. Look at John 1.14. He says, And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us. So from that one part of this verse alone, we are able to see three wonders of Christmas. And last week we looked at the first two. All right. So I'll go over those real quick if you weren't here just to catch you up. So the first one that we see from this is that God desires to be known. God wants to be known. He's not some distant, cold deity that is impersonal and doesn't care about being involved in his creation. No, he wants a personal relationship 
with his creatures, humans, created in his image. He wants to know you. He wants you to know about him. And so he has revealed himself. He is a God who speaks. And so when you see that capital W, Word, the Word of God, that is referring to Jesus. Because Jesus is the greatest communication of God. Jesus is God himself. And so as the Son of God coming to earth, Jesus shows us what God the Father is truly like. He reveals him perfectly to us. He is the image of God. And so when Jesus comes to earth as God himself, fully God, fully man, he is the word of God. He is the communication, the revelation, the greatest revelation of God, God himself, showing us that God wants to be known, right? The second thing we saw was that God desires to rescue us. So not only does he want to be in relationship with humans, he wants to rescue humans. Now this posed a question though, when you say we need to be rescued, well, why, right? The first question we always ask is, well, why do we need to be rescued? What are we being rescued from? I feel like my life is going okay. I feel like everything seems to be relatively in order, right? I mean, I have my ups and downs, you may say, but overall, I don't think I need to be rescued from anything. Well, the scriptures tell us from front cover to back that we do need to be rescued because we have all fallen short of the standard of perfection that a holy God sets for his creation. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, they ruined it, right? They fell into temptation. They sinned against God. They rebelled against their creator. And so therefore, what happened in that moment, as Adam represented the human race, the human race itself, us, all of us, were separated from the presence of God. We are no longer able to enter a holy God's presence because all of us are tainted with sin. It's worse than that, really. It's not like that we have some blemishes or just some dark spots on our soul. We are all evil to the core. Now you say, whoa, man, yesterday was Christmas. I'm on a high note, I'm happy, and now you're telling me that I'm evil. What in the world? Here's the deal. The truth and the reality is that every single one of us has broken God's commands and we are more sick than we realize. It's only by the grace of God through Jesus Christ that we have any hope, that we have any chance of truly bringing honor and glory to him through our lives. Only through his rescue mission, only by him becoming flesh, the word of God who wants to be known became flesh. Why? He became flesh so that he could walk in your shoes, so to speak, so that he could live the life you could never live. A perfect life without sin, always pleasing God. He came as flesh, as a human, so that he could identify with us, so that he could take our place as our sacrifice, as our substitute on the cross. That's the death that we should have died for our own sin, the penalty of our sin. But Jesus came in the flesh as a human to represent you. And then he rose from the grave. And if we put our faith in him, we are united with him in that resurrection. In other words, you have new life now and you will have eternal life later. So God desires to be known. 
God desires to rescue us. The Word became flesh. But today, we're going to look at the third part of this phrase and this verse, right? The Word became flesh, wants to be known, wants to rescue as a human, rescue humans, right? But now let's continue on. What's the third thing we see in this wonderful verse? It's this, God desires to dwell with us. God desires to dwell with us. Now, before I tell you this story, I want it to be very clear that I do not regularly watch the Today Show, okay? I just want to get that out there. But (laughs) a week or so ago, uh, they had a story of a woman who went into labor while she was driving. And uh, she was by herself, and she had to pull over, and she had her baby on the side of the interstate. Woo! Right? Man, I've been in the delivery room a few times myself. It's very, it's very hard on us men. Um, <clears throat> so I can only imagine. But, uh, <laughs> but she was on the phone. She was on the phone the whole time uh, this was going on with a 911 operator who walked her through the whole thing and, and just really helped her uh, tremendously to get through it. Well, Anyway, the Today Show brought them together and introduced them in person for the first time, and it was really neat. It really was. It was really neat. It was really special to see. It was special because the 911 operator, she didn't just help rescue the mom and the baby, right, and then just never have anything to do with them again. She desired to know the mom. She wanted to have a relationship with the mom and the baby that she helped rescue. In fact, uh, right there on TV, uh, she agreed to be the baby's godmother when they asked her on TV. And so a relationship has now formed because of that rescue, right? We see the amazing thing about Jesus is that he did not just rescue us as if he was some kind of first responder and then move on and never talk to us again or something else and never interact with us again. He didn't just rescue us and say, all right, I've done my part, now good luck for the rest of everything. He rescued us because he wants to dwell with us. Do you see that? Jesus rescues you because he wants to live with you forever. Look at the rest of this first part of John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see that? He dwelt among us. The NIV says it this way. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He made a dwelling among us. In fact, this idea of God dwelling with humans is inherent in the anticipation of the birth of Christ. Over 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Isaiah prophesied about this. And he said this in Isaiah 7, 14, he said, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We sing that song, right? Emmanuel. We say that a lot around Christmas time. Why? Because the name Emmanuel means God is with us. All right, but not only there. Listen to this. When the angel Gabriel 
when he appeared uh, to Joseph, when he was assuring Joseph that everything was fine moving forward, that he could get married uh, to Mary, he told Joseph this in Matthew 1, verses 21 through 23. Gabriel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So do you see that this idea of God being with us is all over the Bible? In fact, it's one of the core foundations to the plot line, the storyline of the whole Bible. The angel Gabriel, the prophet Isaiah, they were just proclaiming what God himself already knew all along. God's plan all along since the beginning of time was to dwell with his people. You see, that's been God's desire since day one. God has always wanted to live with us. He's always wanted his presence to fill us. I hope you see how spectacular this is for you personally today. It's amazing, right? It's amazing that God wants to be known. It's amazing that God sent Jesus to rescue us from our sin. But in addition to that, how awesome is it that he does not grow tired of us? How awesome is it that he wants to live with you forever? Right? I mean, it's the holidays. You're either visiting family or you've probably had some family over or something like that, friends, whatever. But I guarantee you, probably none of you have invited them, hey, why don't y'all just move in with us? <laughs> no, we're like, it's time for y'all to go back home, right? God is not like that. God says, I want to be with you forever. I am patient and enduring and more gracious and loving than you can ever fathom. I want to live with you forever. And you see this truth evolving, right? We see this truth expanding or evolving, if you will, as the story of the Bible unfolds from beginning to end. So today's sermon is going to be a little different, and we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper uh, later on today. But I, I want us to, to walk through something uh, I want us to see. I, I think this is really helpful for us to see this progression of how God started with this, this plan, right, to dwell with his people and what happened along the way. Because if you bear with me, and when we get to the end of this, I think you'll see the big picture and how amazing it is that God came to earth to dwell with us. So uh, there's a theologian and author named T. Desmond Alexander. He explains this so well in his book, From Eden to the New Jerusalem, and also in an article in the NIV uh, Biblical Theology Study Bible. And so what I'm about to share with you uh, is coming from him and his organization of it. But these are biblical truths anybody can see if you look close enough, all right? So, so listen to this. What does this have to do with Christmas? Everything, all right? This is, too, this is too cool. Let's walk through this, okay? Starting in the Garden of Eden. Starting in the Garden of Eden, Alexander says, the opening chapters of Genesis assume that the earth 
will be God's dwelling place. Okay, so God creates the earth with intention to reside there himself alongside mankind. This was God's intention from the very beginning of time to dwell with his creatures, to live with his people. So the Garden of Eden was where he placed his people, right? He placed Adam and Eve there to be the caretakers of this special uh, temple garden, if you will, right? Where uh, as Alexander calls it, temple garden, this sanctuary almost, where they would live in God's presence and they would take care of the garden and keep it and take care of it and guard it and worship the Lord. What else, right? And what else does God command them to do in this beautiful place? He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. So they're never meant to just stay in the garden alone. They are supposed to multiply, produce offspring over time, and as the years and, and millennia go on, populate the whole earth, everyone worshiping God. The whole earth was meant to be, from the beginning, one big sanctuary, if you will, one big place where everyone reflected the image of God and gave worship to their creator. That was the design from the very beginning. But we know what happened. Adam and Eve give in to sin. They put themselves first instead of this wonderful plan that God had for them. They didn't think that was enough to keep them happy. So they sinned, and really that word means to go against God's design in any way in your life, to disobey him in any way, they do that. They put themselves first. They think that they can do better. They think that they can be the highest authority. They don't really want to answer to God. And so God punishes them, rightfully so. He's a just God. He cast them out of the garden. He cast them out of his presence. And as Alexander notes, while people continue to live on the earth, from this point forward, though, God's presence is associated with heaven. Do you see that? It's really remarkable what happened. God designed the earth to be the place that was full of his presence and his people. But right off the bat, just a few chapters in to the whole story, that plan is diverted, right? That it, it, it's messed up. It's broken because of us. Because we, as, human, as humanity, as humankind, we separate ourselves from the presence of God because of our sin. So the rest of the Bible story is God himself fulfilling a redemptive plan to once again dwell with us. Do you see that? He wanted to dwell with us. We separate ourselves from his presence. The rest of the Bible is him dwell, coming to dwell with us again, to restore that, to redeem that. So for, for the rest of Genesis and, and into Exodus, right, you see God, you know, he'll talk to Abraham occasionally. He'll talk to Isaac, right? He'll talk to Jacob. But as we just saw in this Genesis sermon series we just came out of, right, they may build an altar temporarily or something to communicate with God, but where is God's presence on earth? He still has no dwelling place among his people on the earth until a major shift happens after 
hundreds of years, in fact, after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, after he delivers his people out of Egypt, they create something, God establishes something called the tabernacle. So we go from the Garden of Eden, that's where God's presence originally was, meant to cover the whole earth. Humans, we separate ourselves from his presence. Now he creates something called the tabernacle. This tabernacle was a portable tent and represented God's presence among the wandering Israelites. Now, it had an inner room inside the tent uh, known as the most holy place. And that is where only the high priest could enter once a year to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. So the Ark of the Covenant was inside this. And Alexander says it extends, the Ark of the Covenant extends the heavenly throne to the earth. The tabernacle links heaven and earth, yet it, it's, it's still just a, it's a tent, right? It's just a portable tent moving around the wilderness with the Israelites. Okay, so then let's fast forward. We go from the garden to the tabernacle, and then what? Eventually, that temporary tabernacle was replaced with a permanent structure, the temple in Jerusalem. Now, the temple was uh, much like the tabernacle, except it was an actual building in Jerusalem, right? It was where God resided among his people. And it also featured a most holy place inside where only the high priest could enter in once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people. So the temple was a very special place to the Israelites, right? To the whole nation of Israel because it represented the dwelling place of God. It was where humanity and divinity met one another. Many years pass, that temple is destroyed, it's rebuilt again, and then finally, something historic happens that will change the way God dwells among his people. God himself comes to earth. The word became flesh and dwelt among his people, right? So this is cool. In John 1.14, the phrase dwelt among us, you know what that literally means? It literally means that he pitched his tent, reminding us of the tabernacle of God's presence. That's what John is trying to clue us in on. God's presence is now with us physically. He's here. Jesus refers to himself, in fact, as the new temple. In John 2, 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, they look at him like he's crazy, right? They say, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? But John says what? He was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus replaced the need for a temple. No wonder the Jews killed him. He came in and just wrecked, right? Wrecked their idea of how to get to God. Now the temple was a holy place ordained by God, but they thought that they had to create their own commandments and their own rules and, and they just added all this stuff 
that God never intended for them to work their way back to the presence of God, Jesus comes and says, no, the only way to the Father is through me. I am the new temple. I have fulfilled. I'm not abolishing the Old Testament. I'm fulfilling it, right? By his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection, Jesus secures an eternal future for anyone who repents of their sin and trusts him to be their savior. This means, this means that only through Jesus, only through Christ, can we live in the presence of God forever. Jesus is our, guess what? Great high priest. He is our great high priest who sacrifices himself. He enters the most holy place and sacrifices himself giving us access to a most holy God. That's why when Jesus died on the cross, the temple curtain was torn in two from not bottom to top showing what man can do, but from top to bottom showing what God did. So that now we can come into the presence of God ourselves through the blood of Christ. That's it. But then that's not it. Jesus ascends into heaven. He leaves the earth. Now, whoa, whoa, Jesus came to earth and the presence of God dwelt among us, but then he leaves the earth. So now what? Right now, what do we do? Well, he leaves the earth to go prepare eternity for us. And he's coming again to bring us into his presence forever. But the question now is, well, what do we do in the meantime? And, and what about his presence? Is his presence now associated with heaven again, like it was after the garden? Well, remember in the garden, God commanded Adam and Eve to do what? Fill the earth, right? Well, as Jesus was about to ascend into heaven when he was leaving the earth, he told his followers something amazing. He commanded them to fill the earth by sharing his gospel message with all the nations, making disciples so his presence can fill the earth in and through his people, which means this. We go from the garden to the tabernacle to the temple. Jesus himself becomes the new temple, right? But when he goes to heaven, he sends his Holy Spirit to live inside his people known as the church. God now dwells in his people God now dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3, listen to this. 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among, among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The temple in that verse re refers to the most holy place. 1 Peter 2 Verses four and five, listen to how Peter says it. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up 
as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are individually living stones and that God is using to construct this beautiful, amazing building known as his people, the church. It's not a physical building, it's you, it's me, it's a spiritual family. But even as the church spreads God's glory and his presence around this earth, we're still living in a sinful and broken world. So there's one final step that needs to take place. In order for God's presence, for this beautiful redemptive plan that we just walked through, for God to come and live among his people forever. There's one final step that needs to take place so that the earth will be completely and fully reflecting God's glory without any obstacles of sin or death. And that final step of redemption comes when the same Jesus who first came to earth as a helpless baby will return again. If you believe Christ came once as a child, as a baby, do you really believe? Do you believe he's coming again as a king? Do you believe that that same Jesus, he will return? He's coming again as a king And when Christ comes this second and final time, he is going to establish his rule and his reign over his earth once and for all. And the earth will be, guess what? His dwelling place. And it's going to be centered around a new city. The Bible calls it the New Jerusalem. Listen to this. The same John who wrote John 1.14 Later on, he had a revelation from Christ himself. And here's what he saw. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Alexander says, The new Jerusalem brings to fulfillment what began in Eden. When John says in Revelation 21, 22, that the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. This suggests that the whole city is a most holy place 
In his holy city, no barriers exist between God and the human population. As priestly royals, even human inhabitant is able to see God's face. Graham Goldsworthy says, Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection is the fixed point of reference for the understanding of the whole of reality. So in other words, understanding this concept, understanding this amazing, beautiful progression of redemption from beginning to end that God desires to live among his people and with us and be with us forever, that literally everything in the world comes back to this, everything. Everything that plays out in this world is working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose and ultimately to fulfill this redemptive plan. Everything revolves around that. Who Jesus is and what he has prepared and him fulfilling his redemptive plan for us. All of this. All of this is what Jesus was fulfilling when he lie in that manger on that Christmas night. So, let me ask you, church. You see, we're not, we're not there yet, right? So we're, we're in this stage where Jesus has commissioned us. What do we do with this? What do we do with this truth? Well, we're talking about the wonders of Christmas. The first thing we do is be amazed. That's the first thing we do. We look at the storyline. We look at the scripture. We look at God's redemptive plan unfolding, and we meditate on it, and we think about it, and we pray and ask the Lord to help us understand it, and we thank him. We thank him with our whole heart, saying, Lord, thank you for coming to rescue me, a sinner in need of grace deserving punishment, thank you, Lord, for saving me. And when you start to meditate on these truths and you start to think about how God has made you his dwelling place, man, does that not leave you with a sense of wonder? And we ask ourselves, God, God has made me his dwelling place, right? But how am I really living out that truth? Where am I tempted to make my dwelling. You know, we have competing wonders in our lives that attempt us to, or that tempt us to believe that the here and now is all that matters. Man, we just go through life and we forget about the New Jerusalem, don't we? I mean, you might think, well, this is talking crazy talk, Pastor, but I mean, what if every day we were thinking about heaven? Do you think it would change how you respond and act around people? Like if you knew that this is where all of this is going, do you think that maybe you'd be a little more patient and kind when people get on your nerves or bother you or do something to you because you know that ultimately God is leading you home to this place and that this earth is not your home? Do you think that we would live with maybe a little more sense of urgency to share the gospel with those who don't know Christ? 
Do you think that maybe we would watch our words a little more carefully around those family members and those friends that don't know Jesus? Do you think that if we had eternity on our minds, do you think that if we dwelled on this great truth and had heaven in our hearts more often, if we meditated on this truth, do you think that it would affect the way we live and respond and act and react? I think it would. I think we forget. I think we forget. We, we, we just... We're trained by our culture. We're trained as, as children. We're trained all around us. We're conditioned to believe that this life is all there is. We forget that God does what desires to dwell with his people now and forever. I mean, look at how much effort he put into pursuing an eternal future with you. So now what about your pursuit of a deeper fellowship with him? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And I pray that you regain your sense of wonder as we continue to celebrate Christmas.